Chapter 19 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The American Civil War. I have already mentioned the fact that the great civil war in America had broken out. The war created a curious difference of opinion in this country. What is commonly called society was almost altogether in favor of the South. The English democracy and working classes generally were entirely in favor of the North. Some of our educated men were divided in opinion. Carlyle, who perhaps could hardly be called on that question an educated man, was rapidly in favor of the South, or rather was rapidly opposed to the North. He knew nothing whatever about the matter, and used to boast that he never read American newspapers. On the other hand, John Stuart Mill, probably the most purely intellectual Englishman of his time, was heart and soul with the cause of the North. Cobden and Bright were, of course, leaders of public opinion on the side of the North. Harriet Martineau, probably the cleverest woman who ever wrote for an English newspaper, advocated the cause of the North day after day. Lord Palmerston, in his heedless, unthinking way, had talked some jocularities after the Battle of Bull Run, which were offensive to the minds of all Americans who supported the cause of the North. Lord Palmerston, however, although Prime Minister, was always regarded as an irresponsible sort of person, who could not be expected to refrain from his joke, no matter whom the joke might offend. But a profound sensation was created in the northern states when Mr. Gladstone unluckily committed himself to a sort of declaration in favor of the South. Speaking at a public meeting at Newcastle-on-Tyne, on the 7th of October, 1862, he gave it as his conviction that Jefferson Davis had made an army, had made a navy, and more than that, had made a nation. This declaration was received in America with feelings of the most profound disappointment. It produced something like consternation among the English radicals who were proud to follow Mr. Gladstone. The pity of it was that he should have spoken on the subject at all before he had made himself thoroughly acquainted with it. The pity of it was that he should have taken no account of the opinions of men like Cobden, who knew the American states well, like Bright and like Stuart Mill. However, we must take Mr. Gladstone as nature made him, impetuous, earnest, full of emotion, and quick of speech. If I were always cool in counsel, says Schiller's hero, I should not be William Tell. If Gladstone were always cool in counsel, he would not be the great orator, philanthropist, and reformer that we know him to be. Five years later on, Mr. Gladstone made a frank and ample admission of his mistake. I must confess, he said, that I was wrong that I took too much upon myself in expressing such an opinion. Yet the motive was not bad. My sympathies were then, 
where they had long before been, where they are now, with the whole American people. I probably, like many Europeans, did not understand the nature and the working of the American Union. I had imbibed conscientiously, if erroneously, an opinion that twenty or twenty-four millions of the North would be happier and would be stronger, of course assuming that they would hold together, without the South than with it, and also that the Negroes would be much nearer to emancipation under a Southern government than under the old system of the Union, which had not at that date been abandoned, and which always appeared to me to place the whole power of the North at the command of the slaveholding interests of the South. As far as regards the special or separate interest of England in the matter, I, differing from many others, had always contended that it was best for our interest that the Union should be kept entire. It is only fair to remember that many of the strongest abolitionists of the North had for years been growing into the conviction that if the South did not secede from the North, the North would have to secede from the South. It was perfectly true, as Mr. Gladstone had said, that the whole power of the North had been for a long time at the command of the slaveholding people of the South. The election of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency was the first signal that that time had gone by. Mr. Gladstone's attention, however, was closely occupied by domestic affairs and by his work as Chancellor of the Exchequer. He had not traveled in America as had Cobden and Harriet Martineau, nor had he, like Stuart Mill, the leisure to make himself master of the study of American politics and life. Anyhow, the mistake was amply atoned for. It was a mistake which hurt the best admirers of Mr. Gladstone in England even more than it hurt his best admirers in the northern states of America, and it was fully atoned for by more than one admission of error and expression of regret. Nobody could have doubted for a moment that Mr. Gladstone's wishes thoroughly went for the prosperity and the progress of the great American Republic. In 1865, the Parliament, which had begun six years before, came to its natural end. Mr. Gladstone presented himself again as a candidate to the electors of Oxford University. Times had changed, however, since his last election. He was becoming more and more an advanced reformer. He had expressed himself in the House of Commons to the effect that the present position of the state church in Ireland was unsatisfactory. The Irish church, as he frankly admitted, ministered only to one-eighth or one-ninth of the whole Irish population. This speech created a profound sensation among his Oxford constituents. To many of the university dons, it seemed like flat blasphemy. When the voting closed, Mr. Gladstone was at the bottom of the poll. He issued a parting address in which he said, After an arduous connection of eighteen years, I bid you respectfully farewell. My earnest purpose to serve you 
my many faults and shortcomings, the incidents of the political relation between the university and myself, established in 1847, so often questioned in vain, and now at length finally dissolve, I leave to the judgment of the future. It is one imperative duty and one alone which induces me to trouble you with these few parting words. The duty of expressing my profound and lasting gratitude for indulgence as generous and for support, as warm and enthusiastic in itself, and as honorable from the character and distinctions of those who have given it, as has, in my belief, ever been accorded by any constituency to any representative. To the Bishop of Oxford, who wrote him a most sympathetic letter, Gladstone sent a reply in which occurs the following passage. Do not join with others in praising me because I am not angry, only sorry, and that deeply. For my revenge, which I do not desire, but would baffle if I could, all lies in that little word future in my address, which I wrote with a consciousness that it is deeply charged with meaning, and that that which shall come will come. There have been two great deaths or transmigrations of spirit in my political existence, one very slow, the breaking of ties with my original party, and the other very short and sharp, the breaking of the tie with Oxford. There will probably be a third and no more. This expression of Mr. Gladstone's aroused some alarm in the mind of the Bishop of Oxford. He asked for some explanation of its meaning. You are not a radical, the bishop wrote, and yet you may by political exigencies, if you submit to be second, be led into heading a radical party until its fully developed aims assault all that you most value in our country, and it, the radical party, turns upon you and rends you. Mr. Gladstone's rejoinder, full as it is of gratitude and sympathy, was not likely to have quite cleared up the doubts of the Bishop of Oxford. Mr. Gladstone was not, however, left actually out in the cold by the decision of the Oxford electors. Some of his friends in South Lancashire had provided against such a possibility by nominating him as a candidate for that northern constituency. At a general election, a man may be nominated for several constituencies, and if he be elected for more than one, he has only to choose which place he will sit for. Mr. Gladstone was elected for South Lancashire, but he came last on the list of the three representatives. The two others were strong local Tories, obscure men comparatively. Lord Palmerston had said, or was believed to have said, to a friend, that Gladstone was a dangerous man and had best be kept in Oxford. In Oxford, went on Lord Palmerston's phrase, he is muzzled, but send him elsewhere he will run wild. In one of the spirited speeches which Gladstone made to the electors of South Lancashire, he referred good-humouredly to Palmerston's remark. At last, my friends, he said, I have come among you, and I am come, to use an expression which has become very famous, 
and is not likely to be forgotten, I am come unmuzzled. The general elections gave to the government a slight majority, and Mr. Gladstone resumed his old office as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Everybody thoroughly understood the difference between his position as member for South Lancashire and member for Oxford University. We shall presently find that South Lancashire Toryism became too strong for him and that he had to seek for a more liberal and progressive constituency. The Bishop of Oxford saw probably by this time that his fears about the possibility of Gladstone drifting on into genuine radicalism were by no means unlikely to be justified. More than once after his election for South Lancashire, he had to go on for new constituencies, for constituents who were marching with the movement of his mind. In truth, Mr. Gladstone's mere acceptance of office under Lord Palmerston marked a new stage in his political career. He had definitely broken away from the Tory party. While he still remained an independent member, he had given up to the last some votes now and then in support of the Tory government, where he believed that they were acting on a rightful principle. But even then he had voted with them only when it seemed to him that their action, however inspired, was tending toward a policy of liberal reform. Now it was becoming every day more and more plain that Mr. Gladstone was growing out of the dusk of Toryism into the dawn of liberalism. When he consented to take office under Lord Palmerston, it was proclaimed to everyone that he had given up the last of his old traditions. Lord Palmerston, to be sure, was not much of a liberal. He was not, indeed, much of anything except a prime minister and a very clever leader of the House of Commons, but Mr. Gladstone simply accepted Lord Palmerston as everybody else did. He regarded him as the man inevitable for the moment, the man who could, when occasion required, put on a decent show of leading the Liberals, and at the same time could, to a certain extent, propitiate and even manage the Tories. Mr. Gladstone's sympathies were very cordially given to Lord John Russell, now Foreign Secretary, who was a sincere and a thorough liberal reformer. Lord John Russell and Mr. Gladstone worked together most cordially. They were both strongly in favor of some measure of reform which should admit the mass of the people to the franchise. They both strongly disliked Lord Palmerston's bumptious and aggressive tone in foreign politics. They both disliked Lord Palmerston's plans for a vast expenditure on fortifications and on what Mr. Disraeli called bloated armaments as a protection against possible or problematical invasion. Lord Palmerston, it is well known, was never drawn toward Mr. Gladstone and was sometimes heedlessly outspoken in his disparagement of his great colleague. End of chapter 19